So when that happens and the, and the song fly doesn't change on time, then you guys all know the watermelon thing. When you know what it's saying, you just say watermelon, 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 watermelon. And it almost looks like you know what you're singing, but you really don't. <laughs> Listen, if you're visiting with us this morning, we want you to know that you are a welcome guest. And that we're so very thankful that you have taken time out of your life to be here with us this morning to spend some moments worshiping God together with one another. For brothers and sisters and others who are online with us, we're happy that you are here with us as well. And we really do look forward to the day when this uh, virus is less and that you can be back with us and be able to enjoy the fellowship that happens within just this building. This morning I was listening to all the buzz going on and listening to all your conversations and it just sounded so wonderful. You sounded so joyful and happy uh, to be here with brothers and sisters and just enjoying each other's life. And that's just a, a great thing in and of itself. Let me remind you of our coffee bar that we have in the back. It's before service and after service. I think this morning we went through like five pots of coffee. So someone's drinking the stuff, and so that's really a, a good thing there. And so uh, please take advantage of that. Uh, also, let me uh, uh, remind you that, you know, our Guatemala team is off down in Guatemala now, and they're doing some mission work down there. And so please keep all of them in your prayers until they are back uh, with us. And then let me remind you about registering, uh, registering for our congregational retreat. You might notice at the bottom it says no retreat fees. And so this is not something that costs you anything other than the gas to get up there. So the retreat is free and we have plenty of beds left. left. And so if you want to come to the retreat, then certainly uh, get registered and plan on being up there with us. Uh, we need to have you re register just in order that we might be able to decide how much food we have to buy and get all those things, those kinds of things ready. And so out in the foyer, there is a registration table. Just pick up a registration deal and sign it and get it in, and that would be a really a good thing. So happy Father's Day. What a great day. Fathers are so Im important uh, to us. I was thinking about Father's Day, and I remember reading a story about a father who told about his little son. His name is Tommy. He's just a little bitty guy. And, and one of their favorite things that they liked to do together between the two of them was to play hide-and-seek. Tommy always got to do the hiding. And, of course, the dad always, you know, he was always doing the finding. And so the game always began by Tommy going away and hiding in his favorite spot, which was always in the, his parents' bedroom, exactly in the same spot and the dad he would begin the game by counting to a hundred by fives and at the end of the count he would say ready or not here i come daddy is going to find tommy and then he would go through the motions of looking in the bedrooms and different places to find tommy and so he'd go into the the bedroom and he'd say is tommy under the bed and he'd hear a little giggle down the hallway and then he'd look in the closet is tommy in the closet and then he'd leave the bedroom and go into the bathroom and, and he'd say, is Tommy in the shower as he opened the curtain? And he'd hear the giggles down the hall. They're getting a little bit louder. And he'd say, is Tommy in the toilet? And Tommy would really start to giggle. And he would go through that a number of times. And then he walked out into the hallway and he said, I wonder where Tommy is. And Tommy would come bursting out of the, his parents' bedroom and say, I'm here, Daddy, I'm here, and then run into his father's arms, and his father would pick him up and, and hug him. And then he recalled telling his son Tommy, he says, you know, Tommy, that's not the way the game is played. But Tommy didn't care because that's not what it was about to Tommy. Tommy was wanting to hide, and he was wanting to be found. And he was wanting to be in his father's arms. That's really what Father's Day is about. 
That's about fathers finding their children and their children finding their fathers and they're having this close relationship with one another. All children want in life is they want to, they want and have the need to be found. They want to be loved and to be valued and to be hugged and to be taught the game of life. Because there's a lot of things happening in life. There are good things in life. There are hard things in life. But there's a lot of joy and a lot of happiness in life. And when a father is involved in the family, it is so much more. And so fathers today, we honor you. And, and grandfathers and uncles and all men who have any kind of influence over children or over your children, we just value you so much and you teach us so much and we learn so much from you. If there's ever a time in our society, certainly in our nation, there is a desperate need for fathers in our country. I had some statistics that I had. I think I had like four slides of it, and I showed them to my wife last night, and she says, you know what? Those are kind of negative. And so I kind of dumped the things. But, man, there are some statistics in there that are absolutely frightening. But I'm going to assume that you want to be good fathers, that you want to do the right thing as, as fathers, and that you recognize that children are wanting to be found, and that now is the time not for fathers to be hiding from their children and hiding from their, from their responsibilities. They need to be out there, and, and they need to be found by their children. And you as fathers, you as grandfathers, you as men in people's children's life, you shouldn't be hard to find. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about how, as fathers, you might be able to transfer your faith into the life of your children. And by faith, I mean the faith that you have in God, the faith that you have in Jesus, the faith that you have in the church that he died for. All those faiths are being transferred into your children's lives so that there is a difference. And so the title of the lesson this morning is Faith of Our Fathers. And what I want to do is I want us to look over at Acts, the seventh chapter. So if you open your Bibles to that section of Scripture, as you turn there, you're going to notice that this section of Scripture is the defense or the testimony of, of Stephen before the Sanhedrin. And you're probably going to think as you look into that section of Scripture, you're going to think to yourself, that's a strange place to do a Father's Day sermon from. And yet within, within Stephen's testimony or his defense, he's going to list a number of men who are the fathers of faith. They're Old Testament fathers. They were men who made an impact on the world in which they lived, and they influenced the people around them. Now, as we look at some of these fathers, I want you to know that these are not perfect men. They were not even perfect fathers. But there are characteristics in each and every one of them that are things that as men we can take, and I think even as women, these are not only just you know, something that men should be about, but it's something that all of us should be about. Even you teenagers, there are things within the characters of these four men that we're going to be look at, looking at that should make a difference in your life. Now, so that you know that I know what the context is, is that Stephen is before the Sanhedrin, the 50, some of the most powerful men in Palestine, in the, the Jewish faith, and he is making his testimony. And in his testimony, he's going to be talking to them about the great purposes of God. And he's going to do a review of their history and how in their history, their forefathers always were disobedient. And then he is going to tell them that you guys are just like your forefathers because you have, not only did your forefathers murder the prophets, but you have murdered the Holy One, which is Jesus Christ. But he uses four men, actually more than that, to bring forth his defense. Now, this evening, I'm going to be preaching a lesson, an expository lesson through Acts, the seventh chapter, about Stephen, because I thought, man, when's the last time have I ever 
talked about the defense of Stephen, and it's a great defense. It's a great testimony of his life, and so that's what I'm going to be sharing with you tonight. But I, I'm doing this part here because I want you to know that I know the context. So I want you to know the central idea of the text. But in this overview, he's going to talk about four Old Testament fathers. And so I want to look at them and the great lessons that we can learn from their lives. So Acts chapter 7 begins, he, he begins his defense by talking about Abraham. Listen to what he says, Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. The high priest said, are these things so? He's being accused of being blasphemous, okay? He's been accused of blaspheming the law. He's been accused of blaspheming the temple. He's dishonoring them. And so they've made an accusation, and by law, he was able to give a defense, so he's given his defense. Okay. So the high priest said, are these things so? He said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. He moved down to Beersheba. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give, him, give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which you will be in bondage, I myself will judge. God said, after they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him this covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. So in Solomon, in Abraham, you find some things. And, and what you find about Abraham is that he leaves, leaves a huge legacy of enduring faith. I mean, think about what he's talking about here. He is known as the father of the faith of the Jewish people, but guess what? He's also the father of our faith as well. And if you look at Galatians, the third chapter, and verse 29, it says, if anyone is in Christ, we are of his seed, and we are inheritors of the, of the promise that was given to Abraham. So Abraham is the father of our faith as well, and his faith is one that is an enduring kind of faith. He really is an example of what real faith looks like because real faith oftentimes steps out in places that you cannot see. For instance, God says to Abraham over in the Genesis, the 12th chapter, he says, you need to leave everything around you. You need to live, leave the Ur of the Chaldees. That's the northern part of modern-day Iraq, which was Babylon. You need to leave that place and go to a place that I'm going to show you. He doesn't know where he is going. Now, he goes over to Haran, and then his father dies, and then he moves on south and goes down through Judea, and he ends up in the desert wilderness of, of Beersheba, where Beersheba is. It's in the wilderness. It's a desert area. And there it says God didn't even give him a foot of land, so he's living among aliens. Think about what all he did. I mean, listen, it takes a lot of faith to pull up stakes and go to a place that you know nothing about. I mean, think about how uncomfortable that would be. He's in a very comfortable place in Ur of Chaldees. He's been raised there. He knows the language of the place. He knows the culture of the place. He probably has a home that is there. He probably has friends that are there. And God says, listen, I'm going, I want you to leave this land. And I want you to go to a place that I'm not going to tell you where it is. You just need to go. And, and, and by faith, Abraham simply does that. 
And because of that, he leaves this legacy of faith where he's willing to step out into no man's land, trusting that God is going to take care of us. Hudson Taylor said this. He was a great missionary to Africa. He says, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. If we can do everything on our own, if we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, if we can make it on our own, then what he's saying is you don't need God. But if you're going to take some risks in your life, if you're going to take advantage of some opportunities that come in your life, you better be willing to faith your way through it because you may not see all the things that are going to go on there. For instance, Hebrews the 11th chapter, which is known as the great hall of faith passage of section of scripture where he goes down through a lot of Old Testament a faithful he talks about abraham in verses uh, eight and following listen to what it says here by faith abraham when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was not was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going he didn't know god told him to go and abraham says let's go and he pulls up stakes and he goes that's incredible when you think about it What's the lesson? What's the legacy of faith here? The legacy of faith that we as fathers can take from that is that we need to help our, our young learn that life is filled with opportunities and that sometimes you have to just step out there. Sometimes you just got to step out on faith. You may not be able to see it all. Your children are getting ready to go from you know, elementary school into a middle school, from middle school into high school, from high school into college, and they need to be taught that, listen, that, there's some uncomfortable things going at that. And so you need to step out into those areas by, by faith. And so the game of, of life is full of unexpected opportunities that leads to a faith, a faith to pursuit. A, an example of that would be, I was going to say a good example, but not even a good, but an example of that, was that, you know, when I graduated from high school, I decided to enter into General Dynamics Convair Division to learn about non-destructive testing on nuclear reactors type things as you built those things. That's what I decided to do. I thought that that would be my life, that, you know, that that would hang with me until I would retire. But when I turned about 25, not quite 25, but right at that, I decided to make a career change. I decided to quit my job, sell my house, sell a truck, sell a motorcycle, and take my family, which at that time was Lori, and then Jill was two years old. Heather was only four weeks old. And we gathered up in a truck. You know, I took my, a U-Haul down to Cedar Hill, Texas, and moved everything down to that house there, moved my young family down to that house there, and we went to school. Now, that took some faith to do that because I'd already told the admission people that I said, listen, I don't want to be a, they're asking, why do you want to come to school? I said, I don't want to be a preacher. I don't want to be a personal evangelist. I don't want to be a youth minister. I don't want to be any of that stuff. What I would like is a Bible education. And my promise to you is, is that if you give me that Bible education, I'll use that for the Lord's sake and the Lord's church wherever I go. And they said, come on. And so I went. And that was like 40, what, two years ago, and here I am today. That took some faith to do that, because my family thought I was nuts. Lori's family definitely thought we were nuts, that you're going to leave a really well-paying job and a house and all those things and go to school? You're crazy. But we did as a great move. There's some steps in faith that we have to do in life. Then what he does is he moves from Abraham to his great-grandson, Joseph. And Joseph becomes an example that requires a courageous 
faith. As you look at chapter 7, looking at verse 9, it says, The patriots became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. And then it goes on to tell the story of this courageous faith of, of Joseph. You remember it says that he talks about the jealous patriarch. He's talking about his brothers. His brothers, they treated him terribly. Joseph was a victim of jealousy and treachery and the worst kind of betrayal. There's some reasons probably why they hated Joseph. Maybe it was that Jacob treated, you know, Joseph um, more like a pet. Maybe he fawned over him. You know, he gave him a coat of many colors. And, and maybe that was some of it. Maybe some of it was because Joseph had had a dream. And he related that dream to his brothers and said that one of these days, you all are going to come and bow down to me. And that didn't say very well. And so they hated him. And so they decided to kill him when he showed up, when he was going up to check out how things were going as shepherds. They decided together that they're going to kill him, but instead decided to throw him in a well and then they drug him out of the well and sold him into slavery to a bunch of Ishmaelites who are moving towards Egypt, and they get to Egypt, and they sell him off. I mean, think about how that must have been. Well, what we're told in our text here, and then in Genesis, the 45th chapter, is, is that, listen, he tells his brothers when they come to Egypt, and he's second only to Pharaoh now. He is risen high in the society, second in power only to Pharaoh. His brothers are in a famine. They go to Egypt in order to be sustained there, and they find out that their brother is second only to Pharaoh, and he's the one that they sold off into slavery, and they think, oh man, he's going to, he'll kill us over this. But he does it, and what he says to him, he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good, and he welcomed them with tears. I mean, it's an incredible story of Joseph. But before Joseph was second only to Pharaoh, there was a lot of courageous things that he had to go through. You know, it's one thing to be courageous. It's, a, it's another thing just to happen into something. You know, anyone can be courageous if they think that they already know what the end game is, how it's all going to work out in the end, or that life is just one mountaintop experience at another. It's another when you don't know how the story is going to end, where you have to phase your way through it and be courageous. And that was Joseph. And he leaves a, an incredible legacy of, of being faithful and being able to, to rise above it all. Life was hard for him sold into slavery by his brother, then taken to Pot sold to Potiphar's household. He was you know, a servant in Potiphar's household, and then unjustly because of what his wife said about him, he is thrown into prison. But Joseph never looks down. He continues to look up and to rise above his circumstance, saying that he always trusted in God, and God said, or the Bible says that God was always with him. So he was one who experienced life as being hard, but he's able to rise above him. Listen, fathers, grandfathers, men, life, is, life it, it doesn't always mean you, you win. Real men don't, don't always win. Real men have disappointments. Real men lose jobs. Real men lose money. Real men lose or have broken dreams. Real men go through difficulties in, in life. That's the way life is. And anyone who has lived any amount of time knows this to be a truth. Now, some people kind of just sell right through life, but the, the vast majority of us do not. 
we find that there are some difficult things in there. And so we need to teach our children that life can be hard. And don't sugarcoat it. Life can be hard, and that's why you should have chores and, and responsibilities in your house so they just don't get a free ride all the way through it thinking that they're entitled to everything. So life can be hard, but you don't want to tell, teach your children that life is just hard because then you end up raising a person who is cynical about life or pessimistic about life and that there is no good things at the end. Je Listen, Joseph made it to where he was because he kept looking up. Life was hard, but he kept on pushing forward. So you need to teach your children to get back up when you get knocked down. Get up, brush yourself up, dry your tears, and get back on. Keep moving forward. You need to teach your children to do that very thing. You need to teach them not to be entitled, that the world does not owe them anything. Contrary to popular opinion, no one owes you anything. You need to earn it, and that's what happened to Joseph. No one earned, listen, no one gave him anything. Anything that Joseph did by faith and his trust in God, he earned. And so we need to teach our children to stop feeling as though you are entitled. Our Constitution says that you deserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's it. And so you deserve life. You ought to enjoy it, liberty, persevere in it. And pursuit of happiness, you got to work for it. And so as parents, we need to be teaching our children those kinds of things. The life may be hard. It will let us down sometimes, but it not, did not keep us down. We can rise above it. It may not be on our own, but by putting our trust in God... God promises to be with us, and we can use those hard times as stepping stones to a better future. If I were to ask, you know, if I were just to survey a lot of you in here who are freshly married, I'm not so sure about younger people married now. Maybe I'm a little bit out of touch there, but I can remember a lot of my peers when we started out in our marriages that, you know, we didn't have money to go out and buy a house. We didn't have money to go out and buy new furniture. I remember my our the furniture we had, my parents handed it down to us. Their old furniture, we got the old furniture. We didn't live in the big, nice house. We lived in, lived in the rental, or we lived in the trailer, or, you know. And, and those times seemed like they were hard times, but I look back on those times, and they seemed so, to be so un, uncomplicated, you know. And we seemed to always uh, make it. You know, I went from a really well-paying job to nothing when I went to school. And when I say nothing, it was just about nothing, you know. But we ate. You know, we seemed to always make it. We had to eat a lot of tuna fish casseroles and spaghetti and, and more casseroles and some more beans. And, but we, I never seemed to lose any weight. In fact, I think I gained like 25 pounds when I was in school. So, so, so listen, use the hard times as stepping stones to big, better things and putting your trust in God. Then he moves to talking about Moses. So, so what do you have in Abraham? Abraham was one who was able to take advantage of opportunities and risk with his faith. Joseph, he was able to take the hard times and rise above the hard times. And then we come to Moses. And Moses is an interesting character because from verses 19 to 45, which is a large section of, of Stephen's testimony, what you find out about Moses is that Moses lived life with a gracious kind of, of faith because Moses is a story of disappointment. It really is. It's a story of disappointment. Now, he is raised in Pharaoh's household. Remember, he's a prince there. He's gone to about the age of 40, but he's starting to pull a pull towards his bloodline, the Hebrews. So he goes out once among the Hebrews, and he sees that a taskmaster is, is treating harshly another Hebrew, so he intercedes. 
Something happens, an argument happens or whatever, and Moses ends up killing this guy. He secretly buries him in the sand, and then later on down the line, he sees two Hebrews who are arguing with one another, and he tries to intercede with that, and they said, what are you doing telling us how to live our lives? We know about what you did. We know about you killing the taskmaster and you burying him in sand, and Moses ran, runs for his life. He moves to Midian, and in Midian, his life changes. In Midian, something, a light goes on in his life, and he makes a huge change. He's there for 40 years in, the, in a desert being a shepherd. And then one day he sees a burning bush and a call from God that he's going to be the deliverer of the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, and he goes back. He begins to talk with those people. And what you find out in the life of Moses from that time on, about 40 years now, so he's 80 years old, now he takes on the task of delivering the people. And for 40 years, he's going to live from one disappointment to the next. He's going to have obstacle after obstacle after obstacle that's going to get in his way. But the biggest challenges Moses faced was not the desert. It wasn't mountains. It wasn't the sea. It wasn't even the enemies in the land. His biggest obstacle was the people. He had a problem with the people that he was delivering. He led a stubborn, never-satisfied nation of complainers. They're always complaining about everything. We don't like what we're eating. We want something else to eat. We don't have a want enough water. We want this kind of water. We want this. We want that. They were constantly complaining. And there were times when Moses was almost at the end of his rope. He was fed up with them. An example of that is over in Exodus 32. Moses has been on the mountaintop for 40 days, 40 nights. He comes down off the mountain after being with God, and he brings with him the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And as he comes down off the mountain, what are the children of Israel doing? I mean, they've just crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. The enemy had completely been destroyed in, a, in, in the water. And yet here they are saying, you know what, we need to go back to our old ways and to the gods of Egypt. So what do they do? They bring all their gold and all those things and they fashion into it a, a golden calf. And now they're all worshiping this, this cow. It's crazy when you think about that. But now they're worshiping this, this calf. And Moses comes down and he sees that, that they are doing this and he becomes angry and he throws the tablets of stone down and breaks them. And God says, I'm going to kill every one of them. That's what the narrative says. I'm paraphrasing. That's what he said. I'm going to kill all of them, and I'll raise a new nation with you. And you know what Moses says? Moses says, listen, spare them. Spare them. Do not erase their names from your book. If you do, then erase mine as well. If you're not going to spare them, then don't spare me. Isn't that, that's amazing when you think about Moses and how his life changed. In Numbers, the 12th chapter, in verse 3, it says, Now, the man Moses was very humble or meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Moses changed, and this meekness, this humbleness, this graciousness, he transfers to the people. He loves these people. They're complainers, they're hard-headed, they're stiff-necked, but he loves them and continues to lead them. He's changed. You say, how much has he changed? He has an anger problem. He killed a man in Egypt and buries them in the sand. He becomes angry and destroys the tablets. But here we learn that Moses had changed. He becomes a great example to us, fathers and grandfathers. There's a legacy. Our children need to see our strong side. They saw Moses' strong side. 
He saw his leadership. But our children need to see our strong side, but they also need to see our gentle side as well. They need to see fathers that can get angry and then get over it. That it doesn't stay with us, that we don't hold grudges in our anger toward our children. We need to learn how to overlook some things and to forgive wrongs. That's what fathers do. And I'll tell you why. Because you wasn't a perfect kid yourself. I know I certainly wasn't. We were not perfect. So why would we expect that our children would be perfect in every way? And so we hang in there for their sake. There's a fellow by the name of William Raspberry who was a syndicated um, writer for the Washington Post. And sometime back, he wrote about um, a herd of elephants that lived in Kruger National Park in South Africa. And in that park, they, there were so many, you know, the, the elephant population became so large that it couldn't sustain the populace anymore. The park couldn't sustain them, so they said, we got to do something. So they took a bunch of the young elephants and they moved them to a park a little ways away and allowed those little elephants to, to grow up. And when they became like teenagers in elephantdom, and I'm not, you know, elephants can live to like 100 years old, so they had to be like 12 years later that Raspberry is writing about this. They become like pretty good-sized elephants. And what they started doing is they started to really um, uh, agitate and harm an endangered species, the, the white rhinos. They would throw they would pursue them. They would throw sticks at them with their trunks. They would chase them for hours and great distances. And when they would wear them down, they would trample them to death. Like 10% of the white rhinos were killed by these, these, these teenage elephants. And so the game manager said, what are we going to do about this? We can't allow them to kill all these white rhinos. It'll be the end of them. And so they said, well, what are we going to do? They couldn't come up with what to do, so they decided to cull the herd. So they killed like five of those teenage elephants because of their behavior. And then they came up with this idea. They said, what if we were to go back to Kruger Park and what if we were to take some of the older male elephants and bring them to this park here? Maybe they can learn something from the, maybe because of their massive and their strength, maybe they can show these young elephants how to behave. And so that's what they did. And he goes on to say these words here. Let me see if I can find these in my, my notes here. As he Because he, I thought, well, actually I could paraphrase it, but I thought it was pretty cool what he said. He said, the new discipline, it turned out, was not just a matter of size intimidation. The young bulls actually started following the big daddies around, yielding to their authority, learning from them proper elephant conduct, and the assaults on the white rhinos ended abruptly. And then he makes this connection. He said... Young human males, no less than young elephants, need a community of strong males to teach them how to be real men. Now, if elephants can do that, then we as fathers and grandfathers and uncles and men of influence, we can do that as well. And we can apply that to our women. We can apply that to some of you teenagers, you know, where you become the leaders where you become the influencers, where you help each other to influence one another towards positive ways, that's some good stuff there. And so we teach and we model for young ones how to live life, how to behave, how to live the game of life, okay? Then finally, he talks about one that's surprising in verses 46 through 47. In verses 46 through 47, it simply says that, that David 
wanted to build the temple. But God said, no, because your hands are with blood. You're a, you're a soldier and full of blood, and I want someone who's a peaceful man to build my temple. And Solomon became the, became the one who built the temple, right? But I got to thinking about David, and I thought, okay, so what is the lesson of David? And the lesson is, is that real men make mistakes. Faithful, real men make mistakes. And David, you know, he made his mistakes. David, you know, he's probably the most renowned king of all Israel. And he did some incredible things in his life, but he made some incredible blunders as well. And one of his great mistakes is with his sin with Bathsheba. Remember what it says over Second Samuel, the 11th chapter, and the 11th chapter begins in verse 1 by saying, in, in, the, in the season when kings were out to war, David stayed home. And he stayed home for a reason. I believe it was accidental that he saw Bathsheba bathing below him. I think he had a plan there, and he ends up bringing her up to his room. He ends up committing adultery with him. He's betrayed his wife now. He ends up impregnating her, and to cover it up, he has her, her husband, Uriah the Hittite, killed in battle. Okay, He withdraws the army away from him, and they end up killing the guy. He might as well have shot him with an arrow himself. And so he has done some, some incredible things there. And, and, and then he tried to cover it up. And then Nathan, he goes to David and he confronts him with his sin by telling him a story. But at the end of the story, David is enraged at this man who stole this man's little ewe lamb and ate it. And David is mad about it. And he says, before this day, that guy is going to get it. And Nathan says, you are the man. You're the guy. You stole something that was not yours. And David, he doesn't get puffed up. He says, listen, I'm the king, and I'll have sex with whoever I want. I'm the king. He doesn't do that. He repents. He has a penitent heart. And he says to Nathan, I've sinned. I've done wrong before God. Please ask him to forgive me. And Nathan goes away, and he entreats God. And he comes back, and he says, Nathan says to David, God has forgiven you of your sin, David, but the sword will never leave your house. What that meant was, you know what, there's going to be some consequences for what you've done here. You're going, to have, you're going to pay a huge price, and he did. He did. When you look at Psalm 51, if you haven't read Psalm 51, you ought to, because Psalm is a penitent psalm. It's about David talking about how his life had changed and how he recognized his sin, and that he becomes, he becomes um, transparent to the nation. They can all read this psalm that he writes. It's an incredible thing. What's the lesson? The lesson is, men, is that we all, we all make mistakes. We all fail in sin, and every one of us need forgiveness as well as to forgive. Gentlemen, uh, you're not perfect. We all fall short, and we need to be able to accept that, that fact, but we also need to be men who come back to God and ask for forgiveness, and sometimes we have to forgive our children as well so fathers teach their young that greatness doesn't demand perfection but it often requires repentance confession and and do-overs fathers demonstrate to their children that our savior came to this world and died on the cross in order that he might forgive us and that the cross canceled out every sin and that christ specializes in forgiving and giving second chances and third and fourth and more if we need it. Fathers and grandfathers and uncles and men of influence, wouldn't you agree with me that's a, that's a fact? 
I mean, we tried, you know, when I was a father, well, I guess I'm still a father. I just don't have any power over them anymore. But, but when I was raising my, my girls, I always felt so inadequate. You know, I, I tried to be the best father I knew how with, with what I had. I tried to stay close to the Bible and do, you know, and use it as my, my guide to navigating through this process of raising my family. But if you were to ask my girls, they would tell you that I made mistakes, that I didn't do everything perfect. You know, there's times when I try to fool myself and say I did, but I know I didn't. And they knew my failings. They knew my shortcomings. They knew my insecurities. They knew a lot about me. They know more even today about who I am. And so uh, there are... There are times that I had to remind myself of that, how rotten I was as a teenager and how I needed to be very understanding towards my children as they fail and as I tried to give them a first chance and a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. I mean, we'd all like to have the philosophy that says that you raise your children up until they turn into like 13 years old teenagers and then you put them in a 55-gallon barrel and feed them food through a, through a hole. And then when they turn like 16 years old, you plug the knot hole. That's it. That's it. But you don't get to do that. You have to raise them all the way up. And, you, and, and I would tell you this, that, it, that you, even though I don't have a lot of power over them, like I did at one time, I still have influence. And I'm still their father. And I still worry about them. And I still cry over them. And I still pray for them. And, and that's the way fatherhood should be. And they may not know that now because they're raising their children, but they'll find that out. So, dads, remember some final thoughts here, and it's simply this. Stephen's testimony provides a curriculum of life that every dad, uh, every dad seeks to teach his children, whatever their age. We teach them that life is an opportunity, uh, that it takes courage to live, that life can be hard, but they can rise above those things. The life is filled with disappointments, especially from people, even those we, we know and love, and that life needs grace, that real fathers uh, also are a disappointment to, even to themselves, that real men need to seek forgiveness and also extend it to others, and that's what we learned. That's what we learned from the faith of our fathers. Well, you know, there are so many other fathers I could tell you about in the scriptures that have great characteristics, but there are four for you to think about, okay? May God bless you, you men. It's not easy being a dad, is it, Brandon? I mean, it's a really a ch- I mean, that's a challenging thing to be a dad. You know? But it's the best thing in all the world. And it, and it has so many wonderful things, so many rewards of raising your children to know Jesus and to know God in a special kind of way. So may God bless you as you father. The greatest father of all, though, of course, is God the Father. And, and I can't even begin to tell you how much he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to this world to die for you so that he could spend an eternity with you so that he could recognize your failings and forgive you of those failings. And not give you just a do-over, a second chance, but he gives you a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth. I mean, he is so loving and so caring and so forgiving. And he wants so much to have a relationship with you. And if you don't have one with him this morning, then please, I, I beg you to think about that. And think about your relationship uh, with him and with his son, Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with him, it's not hard. On the day of Pentecost, they asked the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter just said to them, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 said 3,000 of them did it, and they were added that day. Added to what? Were they added to God's family? They're added to the called out, the church. That's what you can do this morning if you want to be a child of the Father and you haven't done so already. Whatever your need is, once you come well together, we stand and sing and give you opportunity.